All right, once again, tonight, Bittersweet Part 2, Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. But before we get started, we've been covering chapter 9 and 10 together in this particular little mini-sermon series as we recap the Revelation here. And I want to tell you that really, a the, the, the chapter 9 and chapter 10 of the Revelation are really a tale of two angels. In chapter 9, you see the star falling from heaven to the earth, the angel of the bottomless pit. In chapter 10, you see a completely different sort of angel. But before we start with um, with the text proper, I need you to understand something about the 10th into the 11th chapter of the Revelation. The 10th into the 11th chapter of the Revelation is known, what is known actually all the way to 11.13 as a parenthetical section. And that is a section of text that presents facts and information that contributes to the prophetic scene but does not advance the narrative. Now that's a mouthful. That comes right out of a theological dictionary. Okay? A parenthetical section presents fact and information that contributes to the prophetic scene but do not advance the prophetic narrative. Now, the thing is, is, as complicated as that sounds, we use parenthetical devices in literature and in movies all the time. This is a common thing. You're probably very familiar with it. If you've ever watched The Lord of the Rings, there are plenty of these things that happen. It happens in uh, The Blue and the Gray as well if you're more of a Civil War guy. And so what they'll do is they'll show you one side. They're preparing for a big battle, and they'll show you one side. And here's what's going on over here. Here's what's going on with the orcs, or here's what's going on uh, with the union. I, I wouldn't necessarily associate them together, but you know what I'm saying. And then over here on the other side is here's what's going on. Here's what's going on with the uh, here's what's going on, you know, with with the hobbits and, and the good guys, or here's what's going on, you know, in, down in New Orleans or whatever. And it's different events, but they are coinciding. Now they're not necessarily happening for lockstep, moment to moment, at the exact same time. But this is giving you information that is not advancing the narrative. It's more stuff that's happening concurrently with each other in different places, to different people, or in different realms. And if you want the proof text, it's all the way over here in Revelation chapter 10, verse 14 where it says the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is coming, which is exactly what is told to us at the end of chapter 9. So, here we are in chapter 10. and we'll just It's a short enough chapter, we'll just read the whole thing and then we'll go back and break it down. And then I saw another mighty angel. Another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. 
And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go and take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Well, here we see another mighty angel that could not be more different from the angel of the pit that we saw in chapter 9, a star fallen from heaven. This angel is described as everything that you would expect to being from the throne room of God. He is coming down, not fallen from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. Men may have co-opted the covenant stamp of God, but God has not let it go. His face shining like the sun, legs like pillars of fire, his right foot in the sea, that would be the Mediterranean, his left foot on the land, big dude, a loud voice like a roaring lion, and most importantly, holding this little scroll in his hand. He's often been identified mistakenly as being Christ. And though we see the pre-incarnate Christ described as an angel of the Lord multiple times in the Old Testament, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the uncovering of Jesus Christ, the revealing of Jesus Christ, not the hidden mystery of Jesus Christ. And Besides that, this angel swears by Him who lives forever and ever and who created heaven and what is in it and earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it. Thus clearly referring to Christ as He is described in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 through 18 and not referring to Himself. We see almost exactly this same type of activity in Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. It's so paralleled that, as a matter of fact, it happens twice in Daniel. We'll look at the other time here in a minute. It is so parallel that most scholars agree that this is not only probably the same angel that is being spoken of, but that Daniel and John are probably witnessing the same events from opposite ends of the spectrum. Because when you look at the book of Daniel, Daniel gives you a very concise, detailed telling of the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And then gives you a very quick synopsis of what is coming in the last three and a half years. The revelation is exactly the opposite. The revelation begins with a very quick synopsis, a kind of a, a review, if you will, of what happened in the first three and a half years, and then picks up where the book was sealed in chapter five and takes off from there. The book's sealed in Daniel chapter twelve, and it's opened in Daniel chapter five, and they both have this kind of little overlapping time where the two books butt up against each other. I'm firmly in this camp. I don't think it's only the same angel. I think Daniel and John are seeing the same events. 
And there's some kitchen talk that could go along with that. But we'll leave that for the kitchen and stick to the facts while we are in the pulpit. In Daniel chapter 12 it says, I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all things would be finished. He is the second angel of this type. The very beginning in chapter 10, it says, Then I saw another mighty angel. The Greek here is allos, and it means another of the same type. The last time that we saw this was in Revelation chapter 5, which I think is very pertinent to our discussion tonight. Because in Revelation chapter 5, in verses 2 through 5, it says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And and one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Guys, this is, as we've said before, this is not the revelation of a wall chart. This is not the revelation of the mark of the beast. And I'll say it tonight, this is not the revelation of an angel. Man, there's been whole books written about these two angels. This is not the revelation of an angel. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when you see this first mighty angel, and now the allos, then another mighty angel, this is the second of the same type, Now, whether they're the same one or they're not the same one, but they're of the same type both times. What they're there to do is the revealing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, chapter 5 is not about an angel going and a scroll going, hey, listen, we're all weeping because nobody can get it open. It's about the answer to who can open it. That's what it's about. Chapter 10 is not about a mighty angel in all of his resplendent glory which is awesome don't get me wrong but there's a reason one of the things that that you'll note if you if you mess with much prophetic stuff is man there's all these guys that they just want to pick apart every little let's talk about the rainbow what does that mean well man if you look i'm going to tell you i can cross-reference a text decent enough and about the, if you want to go any farther than saying, well, the rainbow is the sign of God's covenant with men that He'll never destroy the earth again by water, and so obviously this angel's associated with Him and God's covenant, that's about as far as you're going to be able to take it and be able to stay in legitimate, concrete, doctrinal, biblical theology. So here's a really fantastical description. And everybody wants to get caught up in the description. It's not about the angel. Just like in chapter 5, this mighty angel stands up with a booming voice. Who will open the scroll? It's not about him either. It's always about the Lamb. Just as it will be here. The activity of the mighty angel. (laughs) Well, the first thing that he does is introduce the seven thunders and Same thing here as with the angel. There's not a lot you can say except for that these thunders speak. So they're not lightning thunder. They're something completely different. Um, Their substance is most likely, and I do say most likely because I think you can make a decent 
case for it in Scripture, but it's not an absolute. It is most likely the voice of God from the throne Himself. This is typically what you see in places like Psalm 29 where it says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters and the God of glory thunders the Lord over the many waters. Specifically in places like John chapter 12, verse 27, where he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd stood there and heard it and said that it had thundered. And others said, An angel has spoken to him. Now look, that's anecdotal evidence. There's no doubt about it. right? Like There's no solid cross-reference there. But seeing who this angel is, where he's coming from, and what he's going to introduce, I would say it's highly likely. Their content is unknown to us because it has been sealed from heaven. These guys want to sit around and say, well, it could be this and it could be that. Well, it could be. <laughs> Man, when God seals something, you're not going to unseal it. And the book of Daniel was sealed at uh, the book of Daniel was sealed at the uh, at the at the halfway point. And those Jews poured over that thing for six hundred years. Never could figure it out because they didn't have the second half of the narrative until it was unsealed in the fifth chapter of John's Revelation. While the content has been wildly speculated. Once again, I would encourage people, this is not the sealing of apocalyptic information. This is not the revelation of that. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Angel swears to him by who lives forever and ever. Generally speaking of the Godhead, but in the context of the revelation, once again in chapter 1, verses 17 through 18, he is swearing to Christ. The content of the oath. Now we're getting down to business. He swore by Him in verse 6, who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as He announced to His servants the prophets. In the days, plural, the days, not the day, but in the days of the seventh trumpet will be brought about the consummation and eventually the day of the Lord. And what mystery is to be revealed? The mystery of God that is to be fulfilled is nothing less than the euangelizo, the good news, or the gospel. This is what it's all about. It's not about the angel. As magnificent as he is, he is the messenger. If the messenger comes such gloriously clothed, how glorious do you think the message actually is? Hey man, listen. I, don't get me wrong. I'm not against simple gospel. I'm not, man. I believe there's a time for it. I'm not against little tracts even. I think they're probably relatively ineffective today. But man, God does whatever He wants with the gospel, right? So, I mean, you know, you 
page out of the Bible, whatever. I'm not against any of that. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is neither simple nor common. Now, you may be brought to it in a simple and common way because we're simple and common creatures and God has to condescend to speak to us in a way that we can grasp the glories of what He's saying. But the reality is, is the fullness of the gospel that is saving you and saving me. Alvin, no matter how hard we push into the glories of that thing, when we finally see it face to face, This is Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 7 through 14. The euangelion that is mystery. That the mystery of God will finally be revealed. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His Glory. The content of the oath is no more delay. The mystery of God, the euangelizo, the good news of the gospel will be revealed. And the nature of the gospel is that it is a mystery that has been hidden for ages past. At one time it was way more hidden than it's hidden now. I mean, when, when, you, look at, when you look at the garden, I mean... You'll, you'll strike his heel and he will crush your head. Man, that's a, that's a pretty cryptic gospel from a human standpoint. I mean, I don't know how without the rest of Scripture to explain how long you're going to be able to exegete that out. It's like, well, there's a dragon. He's now a serpent. There's these humans. They were fallen. And at some point in time, there's a son coming out of this woman and He's going to bite him on the foot and he's going to stomp him on the head. I mean, that's about as far as you can go. But Scripture tells us that is the promise of the gospel. Man, that thing starts unfolding. We see more and more of it. Man, by the time you get to Abraham, we're starting to talk about Ibirus and crossed over ones and changing people's names and identity and being called the children of God. And when you get to the Exodus, you see the first true picture of what an archetype of the Antichrist and the tribulation of his people are going to look like. And when you get to King David, man, you start speeding up quick now. 
God's given revelation. Mysteries are being revealed. He's being clear and clear. You get to Isaiah and we got, man, he was crushed for our iniquities. Just keeps getting bigger. So that by the time you get to the incarnation, there is more than enough there to go, yep, that's him. That's him. The mystery has been largely revealed in respect to how it started. It has only been slightly revealed in respect to how it will end. 1 Peter chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, this is verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was... See, I love that too. Did you ever get taught when you were a kid in Sunday school that, well, in the New Testament, the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament is in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God just kind of came on someone, they put it on like a coat, and they prophesied and did whatever, and they left them. And in the New Testament, the Spirit of God comes into you, and it stays. Okay, well, they should have read 1 Peter, because these are the prophets of the Old Testament. <laughs> Look, God's immutable, folks. He doesn't change. He saves men one way. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in things that have now been announced to you through those who preach good news to to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. These things are so mysterious that even as these guys are now revealing the things that were spoken of cryptically by the prophets through the Holy Spirit that was in them, that even as they're going around preaching these new revelations and these mysteries being revealed about the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are still angels in heaven at that moment that are going, man, uh, what's up with that? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 12. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not... Oh, I'm in Romans. No wonder that wasn't working. I was like, man, that ain't right. Okay, 1 Corinthians 13. Here we go. Verse 8. It's interesting they're both love passages. That's what I started off, I thought I was okay. And then it just started going south on me, Damon. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Now Paul's writing to this in them in real time. After all the revelation of the New Testament, he's writing this in real time. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial, that the perfect being Christ, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, Paul says that we prophesy in part and we know in part. And that one day, 
when the perfect comes, and there is only one who is perfect. What Jesus said, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. When the perfect comes, when Christ comes, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. And he uses an analogy to describe the distance between what he knows now and what he knows then. And he says, when I was a child, thought like a child, spoke like a child. When I was a man, I gave up childish ways. He's comparing the chasm, and and if you want to follow what Jesus said here, and I think it would be a pretty good deal if you want to become like one, you must become like one of these little children to enter the kingdom of God. That particular term in the Greek means like one you can, like a, a, a little one. Like maybe a toddler, but not any bigger than that. Like one you can pick up and move around. He says, man, I would compare the difference between, the, and this is Paul writing, right? Who knows as much about the gospel as any living man. And he says, I would compare what I know now to that of a toddler compared to the maturity of a grown man, to what's coming. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 2, I said John knew as much, or Paul knew as much about the gospel as any grown man. I guess John could give him a run for his money. He'd probably make a good, probably make a good quiz ball team. In John chapter three, first John chapter three, verse one through two. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. When I was a little child, I thought like a little child, but I wasn't going to stay a little child. What I was going to be is a man. And there's a gargantuan difference. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we will see Him as He is. Both John and Paul link the fullness of the revelation of the gospel in being able to see Christ face to face. That's when it's no longer a mirror darkly. That's when it's no longer a little child. Up until then, the greatest scholarship on this planet, including Paul and John themselves, confessed that we just know a drop in the bucket. If the messenger comes in such resplendent glory, how glorious is the message? If you want to focus on all the trinkets on the angel, that's the part I would focus on. If the messenger is this angel that puts one foot on the land and one foot in the Mediterranean Sea, and what is being described here doesn't mean standing in the surf. (laughs) This thing is a bad boy. If the messenger's that glorious... How glorious the good news that He brings. Verse 8, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go and take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And guess what? It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. 
And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Um, It appears the word for little scroll, if I can get this out, I don't like Greek words that have more than three syllables, but Bibliaridion, and it it means little scroll is, is probably not the best translation. It's not a scroll, it's a codex. It's a it's a book. And it almost means booklet. And it doesn't exist anywhere else in the Greek. Most scholars think that John coined it. <laughs> okay? And here it is, because they can't find it anywhere. Um, but it's it's you know a bunch of parts of a couple with you know it's like you would do in English you take a base word and a couple modifiers and make you something new it's open it's not sealed it's very accessible to him John is commanded to eat it we see the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 2 and we won't go there 2 through all the way through 3 3 we won't go there tonight but the idea is God keeps telling him to eat it and then and then speak it and it's the idea of internalizing the word and then speaking out of what has been internalized, um, where God's priorities become our priorities, when we're, we're not speaking the gospel from you know off of a list, off of a checklist, but we're have internalized the gospel and we're speaking the gospel out of a sanctified heart, where God's priorities have become our priorities. I'm all for um, teaching kids how to share the gospel. I'm all for teaching even methods on how to share the gospel as long as you've got kids that already have the gospel in them, right? Because otherwise it's just pointless um, and and doesn't go anywhere. Um, But you can teach them well once it's in them. And he says, listen, you've got to eat this thing. It's sweet on the tongue and bitter in the stomach. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 119, 103. You know, I think that this, I think we see John dealing with the same concepts of the difficulty of God's purpose and election, the difficulty of God's providence for men that we've been dealing with for the last couple weeks from the pulpit. You know, it's man, you read this stuff and, and you're like, yes, yes, whoa, whoa. That's rough, <laughs> you know. I mean, you know, you got you know, you got Paul up there going, "Man, guys, I would I, I would be cursed if it would save them." And you're like, "Man, that's a bold man. That's a that's a self sacrificing man. There's a lot of character there." And man, that kind of character is coming from God. And you get down the page, and he goes, "Yeah, that baby right there. I love him. I hate that one." All right, you know, and you start pushing back a little bit. And next week we're going to get down to the point where God says don't run your mouth and so there's stuff in there that's sweet and there's stuff in there that's bitter but the only reason it's bitter is because we're the fallen creature and he's the holy God it's all sweet to him and so here he is I mean John's struggling with the same thing he's going listen man but here's but here's the deal you got to do it it's not an option Right? You don't have the option to, to lick it so it only tastes sweet in your mouth but not swallow it so it's not bitter in your stomach. You've got to do it. That's the deal. Eat it. It's going to taste great. Application is going to be rough. Because 
The mystery is the gospel. And the gospel's come into its fullness. And the fullness of the gospel is a tribulation like no human being, well, not just any human being, but that has literally never been and will never be again. The gospel has got to go through that station before it lands at the millennium. And it's got to go with the millennium, go through the millennium, where the Jews are vindicating His righteousness before it goes into eternity. And before it can go into eternity from the millennium, it's going to go through the white throne. And it's bitter and it's sweet and it's bitter and it's sweet and it's bitter and it's sweet. And it's legitimately bitter. That's not just a label we put on it. It's legitimately bitter. Like it's, it's tough. There's stuff about the gospel that's tough. Man, when your kid, especially think about, think about 150 years ago, your kid's being called to mission service in the Congo. They crawl on that ship. You know the likelihood is you will never see them again. And you know that they'll have, if, they, if you don't, that they'll have a reward in heaven that'll shine beyond most of the saints. The martyrs are the closest to the throne. Man, it's bitter and it's sweet. It's bitter and it's sweet. It's bitter and it's sweet. Here's the deal. I mean, look at the cross. I mean, look, look at the Christ. I mean, man, here's the incarnation. It's so sweet. Here's the cross, and it is so bitter. Here's the resurrection, and it's so sweet. Here's the first century persecutions of God's people, and it's so bitter. Feeding them to wild beasts, throwing them into furnaces. Here's the deal. It always ends at sweet. And the sweetest of the sweet. And when it lands there, it never stops. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth, said the psalmist. And yet you see the bitter in Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus, broken of heart, says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The full counsel of the gospel contains both wrath and grace. When God's priorities become our priorities, when they are internalized into us, when you eat the gospel, it will be sweet. And it will be bitter. And we are fully on board for both. As easy as one is and as hard as the other. The reality is, is at the end of the day, the angel looked at John and said, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. That prophecy starts again in chapter 11, verse 14. And it is some of the most difficult of the entire revelation. It's not the revelation of anything but Jesus Christ. It's bitter and it's sweet, but it always ends at the eternal glory of the highest sweetness. Damon, pray for us.